Good evening, Sangha. Tonight I'd like to start the talk with a little meditation together. And I'll include a little reflection in it or a little guidance. Short meditation. So I invite you to guide yourself in, in your own way. Connecting with your anchor, with the body. Establishing or continuing presence, awareness of what's happening right here and right now. Dropping into our mindfulness practice. And now I want to invite you to introduce some phrases into your mind. Two short sentences. I am so-and-so. So for me, I am Tara Malay. Second sentence, I am happily meditating. And just kind of keep them going. Reintroducing them as need be. I am so and so. I am happily meditating. And just kind of notice the words, the phrases, reconstituting themselves in the mind. Does it feel like the mindfulness can be ongoing as those thoughts arise and re-arise in the mind? I am so-and-so, and I am happily meditating. Is there any impact that you can sense on the heart-mind from these phrases? And now I invite you to eliminate the word happily. I am so-and-so. I am meditating. Continuing in this way. Noticing any shifts or changes in the inner landscape. As... The phrases continue. And 
And now I invite you to eliminate the second sentence. Just, I am so-and-so. Does anything enter in or diminish in the inner landscape? Any qualities of mind, of heart? Just repeating that phrase, I am, insert your name. Now remove the last name. Now remove the first name. Remove the verb am. Remove the I. Just noticing what arises in this space of awareness. What can be known? What is known? That was a riff on a meditation guidance that I believe was originally given by Ajahn Sumedho. And there's nothing special that was supposed to happen. Could have been 
different for each and every one of you. Isn't that fascinating? Perhaps there was a noticing at times that at least that the words needed to continually be recreated. Otherwise, they'd just disappear. Might move on to some other thoughts, other projects in the mind. But yeah, there's nothing special that was supposed to happen. And whatever happened that you noticed with mindfulness is the perfect thing because this is a practice where we're connecting with the truth of our own experience. The truth. Really kind of a practice of an unflinching truth, a relationship of unflinching truth with what's actually happening for us internally and externally. So mindfulness can be described as just this, a contact with the truth, acceptance of the truth. For example, Gil Fransdahl has written that mindfulness is sometimes defined as the practice of being honest about what is happening in the present moment. Kind of pretty right on, huh? We, we notice what's actually happening. We stop ignoring it. We're pushing it away, and we accept it just as it are, as is, so honest. Bhante Gunaratna, similar statement. Mindfulness practice is the practice of being 100% honest with ourselves. So there's this honesty, and sometimes we have to see things we don't want to see necessarily, Afflictive things, embarrassing things, like making up stories about what other people have done and actually getting mad at them for it, things like that. The shenanigans that the mind gets into, especially we can see them in the silence, spending some time plotting how to get socks like the person sitting next to you. (laughs) That kind of stuff. But there's a, you know, some deeper truths that we're um, uncovering here. And so that's the thing about the practice is that we're relating to our experience by being honest about what's happening. And in the process... We're also really uncovering and taking in and beginning to understand really deeply and intuitively certain core truths about our experience. And tonight I'm going to talk about two of those. <clears throat> Many of you will have you know, heard about this teaching on the three characteristics of conditioned phenomena, which is fancy phrase for all of our bodily and mental experience. The three characteristics, I like how Nayana Panika Tara put it, just call them the three basic facts of our existence. 
three basic facts. And tonight I'm going to talk about two of them, impermanence and not-self. So in Pali, that's Anicca and Anatta. There's three, yeah. So you'll have a, I'll have some teaching on the third, which is Dukkha. Actually, usually taught kind of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta. That will be coming up for you. There could be a talk on e- any single one of these. So this is going to be touching in for you. giving you a sense of these characteristics and how the practice kind of begins to unfold these truths for us. And also at least a little bit, I hope to talk about how understanding these more deeply really can impact us and support us as beings in the world who are social, relational, and we want to have impact, be compassionate and wise, as Devin pointed to last night. So in speaking about anicca and anatta, impermanence and not-self, I want to use, launch off by using, referring to, according from my favorite Dharma poem. And this is a poem, it's attributed to Taijitsu, the abbess of Hakujuan, 18th century abbess in a Zen Buddhist monastery. And it's uh, kind of like a description of her awakening. She saw that a rising phenomena arose, abided, and passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. So this poem, or excerpt of a poem. It speaks to both impermanence and not-self. And also how the kind of the knowing, the seeing, the perception of impermanence leads into or feeds into, supports the seeing of not-self. In fact, these three characteristics are not actually really distinct. Uh, They're kind of different ways of looking at the same thing, different angles of looking at the same core truths about our experience. So the first couple of lines, you know, roughly correspond or describe this seeing into impermanence. She saw that a rising phenomena arose, abided, and passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. So we all have a a sense of, you know, the obvious signs of impermanence in our life. Some of us, you know, we can be very well acquainted with a lot of these. 
They're all around us. The rain comes and it goes. Bowls of oatmeal come and go. These things get digested and they come out with other stuff. And there's a great circle of life, cycle of life that we participate in. The brilliant, bright stars here, the shining moon gives way to the sun every day. The process of looking forward to a month of practice turns into looking forward to a couple of weeks more, a little more than that. And in this ongoing process, centuries come and go, and quite frankly, we'll all be gone. At some point, not remembered. So the astronomer Carl Sagan said, the size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding. Lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home. And all the little beings on it, like us, lost in this immensity and the eternity of our actual universe. But the thing is, we live in a kind of denial about all of this, right? Even this level of impermanence that's super accessible in our everyday lives. Some of us are more connected and it gives us a lot of purpose and a lot of peace like Devin's grandfather, yeah? As he mentioned last night, dedicating his life to service knowing someday he would die. So encounters with the gravity of this truth of impermanence can be some of the things that lead us, lead people to practice, you know. Um, Not always, it's different for everyone, but I will say for me, it was the motivation. When I was 31, my mother died. I was present with her. I saw the light go out in her eyes. And it Well, obviously there was grief, but there was also a total shaking up of my youthful obliviousness. Uh, I realized I had no way to relate to the actual basic facts of our existence. You know, rooted in deep truth of Anicca impermanence. So this practice is so powerful because... It allows us to connect with that, but also even with a, another level of impermanence, one that where we can see over time and really come to intuitively know deep in our hearts that really it, every experience is just disappearing in a flow. We can't hold on moment to moment. It's all this flow of change at a really micro level. And our further seeings of that allow us to align more with the the truth of the kind of more obvious facts of 
our lives that are impermanent. So when I think about this, reflect on this truth of that flow of change that we are all really marinating in, in life. Um, Another poem often comes to mind that I like. It's a haiku by the Japanese poet Isa. Do is often this symbol of impermanence. And he wrote, a world of dew, and within every dewdrop, a world of struggle. So our life, in the way that it's just shifting and changing in a flow, is kind of dewy in that way, that dew is shimmering always. It's just so fragile, and even when it seems to be a still dewdrop, it's kind of trembling, right? Just the way we can start to know that when we're standing, we're never really still. There's constant movement and change in that. We're standing, there's just, the body is always shifting and moving. Even when we're sitting, there's some change going on. Certainly what's happening in the mind, but the breath, the inner movements of the body, the organs, life ongoing, a constant process of change. Life, you know, it's a verb, it's a process. And we don't need science to back this up or see it because we can see it as we practice in our own lives. But I do find it fascinating that when I came across scientific definitions of life that, you know, can only be described as with change embedded in the definition. So scientists don't have, these are evolutionary genomics scientists, don't have a consensus definition of life, but here are a couple that I found. A life form is a self-reproducing system of chemical reactions endowed with a dedicated replicating memory storage device that directs the formation of the system's components. <laughs> Self-reproducing system of chemical reactions. So we're all walking around chemical reactions. Or life is a, self, life is a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. So we are constantly evolving. This flow of anicca, like I said, it's in everything under our noses, and we see this more and more in the practice. You know, we see the beginning, the middle, and the end of an in-breath, and then it, there it goes again, the beginning, middle, and end of an exhale, and then there's the beginning and middle and, and end of an inhale, and it's a flow. Within those, there's individual flow, a cascade of sensations. We see a thought arise and disappear in a poof. And then maybe we get anxiety about that, right? That's kind of why sometimes we want to write some of it down, because we know it, we know it's gone. It's gonna go. So our process of seeing more and more Nietzsche in this practice happens because of the power of mindfulness. 
aligned with the rest of the Noble Eightfold Path, the power of that awareness. Just to describe that process in a really nutshell form, we see each moment, we're training our minds to actually be aware of what's happening in a moment, and in the next, and in the next, and our mind collects data on the individual characteristics of those moments. And we see different, different, different moments, keep collecting them, and suddenly it can dawn on us that there's something universal about everyone of those moments, that they're impermanent. And the process is compared to getting wet in a fog, how our minds collect that data, absorb it, process it, and at, in moments, we, our minds get inculcated more and more with an understanding of the truth of this ongoing experience. Sometimes we can have little aha moments or sometimes big. That's our insight practice into these three characteristics. One of the ways that we can begin to see a Nietzsche and that we've referred to is by beginning to see our direct felt experience more accurately for what it is beneath conceptual overlays that give us a mistaken idea of what the actual experience is to be a human being. So we've talked about things like the shoulder or the knee or the breath as a concept. And what's actually happening is this flow of elemental experience. And this can be, this conceptualization of our experience is happening just really through every sense door. So one of the ways that we can begin to see through the way our minds conceptualize is also just through noticing, seeing. You need to be mindful of the process of seeing. And that's just noticing that seeing is happening and beginning to see, to drop back and notice there's form, there's color, being seen in a non-conceptual way. And then we can start to see that our concepts are really kind of covering up our experience. So you can see it in really any movement, that there's just this flow of change that's happening in our sense doors, right? So if I take this striker and move it this way, it's like the question is, is this the same striker as this? as this, is it the same? The striker word would have us, leads us to conclude there's something permanent, something solid. But what's happening in seeing color and form, a flow, 
So that's part of why I started the talk with doing that little meditation. We can begin to see that, you know, we have to create these concepts and we can start to see them coming and going and just noticing that in our experience. And so touch into ourselves, touch into for ourselves the impact of the mind doing that. You know, we might notice the words reconstituting themselves, I am Tara Malay, and whatever the impact is of saying that in the mind. And notice that in order to stay in that state of mind, or some measure of it, we have to keep on creating because it's going to disappear, that concept. So seeing, to some degree, the failure of concepts to accurately accurately portray our experience serves as a kind of a bridge for how we can begin to see anicca and anatta in the same way as like I am Tara Malay, you know, is a obviously a very self-existent statement about our self-existence. And we can begin to see too when we start to um, we see this just by being mindful. We start to open to the truth of anatta, not self. Just through that knowing, simple. We don't have to change the practice or try to find anatta. Because um, it's actually just a truth. It's not that we let go of a sense of... It's not that we let go of self. It's just that there's a mistake that we're making in concluding from our lives, our experience, that there is a solid self here. So it's really important also not to conceptualize not-self, but to try to intellectualize it. And that's also why I wanted to start with that meditation, to encourage just the sense of feeling into what might be offered that resonates in talking about anatta, and noticing if the mind wants to try and intellectualize and just, just let go and see what resonates you know, from the talk, see what resonates from what's offered, what lands. So when our, this process we have of continually solidifying experience and concepts also really uh, keeps us in a sense, keeps us in a sense of separateness, right? When we see not self, we can sometimes connect with an actual sense of real deep connection with other beings, the world around us. And the, it's really the momentum and the continuity of mindfulness that can support that. And you've been seeing it all along. Like It's connected. It's a flow from the seeing of Anicca and the seeing of the other things that we've talked about, uncontrollability and conditionality. And it just, that sense of, one of the sense that 
seeing that we can have into non-separateness, into connectedness, can be one of the really freeing, liberating aspects of, exp- of seeing not-self. So there was one one-month retreat that I was on here, and I think it was about my, maybe my second one-month retreat here. And I was just standing outside, and I was waiting for a meeting with teacher Pascal Eau Claire. And, uh, you know, he was late. This happens on the one-month retreat. I'm sure you've experienced that. And somehow, you know, I'd been practicing for a while, and somehow the conditions came together. And I really was just, I was just leaning against one of those posts and not making a special effort to be mindful. But this is how the conditions can just come together. And I noticed... I heard a sound of a crow cawing. And I noticed the mind reaching out to conceptualize that perception. Just reaching out and saying, crow. And yet, I also saw this crow fly. I felt the vibrations of the caw go through my body. It wasn't just the hearing, but I felt the flow of that experience elementally through the body. And then I felt the mind go out, kind of conceptualize. And yet what was actually what was actually happening was a flow of change. And kind of really solidifying that other being, that crow, in this way did not accurately portray what that experience was of that other being. That other being was a flow as well. And that was, for me, I felt a sense of, sense of kind of breaking through to some degree of this being bound up in a sense of separation from not really connecting with this truth of not-self. And there was metta there. There was like some natural metta that flowed as well. This is just an example of one of the ways we've talked about uncontrollability, we've talked about conditionality. And when we see some of these experiences more deeply, we can also touch into a sense of really a deep connection with the flow of life that points to this not-self characteristic of our experience. So as we've talked about uncontrollability, that's another way, of course, that we see not self. And, you know, we, t- we started off in a way talking about how we don't control when mindfulness arises, right? Again, when the mind wanders off, and you, many of you may have noticed that before, but it's a, we keep on seeing that. We keep on seeing it. And I'm sure that you're, you're like so much more familiar and acquainted with that now. We don't control... What's the next sense experience and whether it's going to be pleasant or unpleasant or neither? You know, when we sit down at lunch and put the first bite of food in our mouth, we don't control whether that's going to be pleasant or not, whether we're going to respond by liking it. We try to continue, if it is, to keep making that happen. And that 
that effort to that continuity and that effort to continue recreating pleasant to push away unpleasant kind of it actually obscures the truth of anicca and moves into obscuring the truth of anatta so our grandmother teacher again ayakema described how impermanence is masked by continuity exactly what she said impermanence is masked by continuity because the breath continues to arise we forget that each moment of the breath is new the old one discarded and useless right so impermanence is masked by continuity and she speaks of not self using the word corelessness there's no solid core here corelessness is masked by compactness solidity in order to see things as they really are we must break down the obstacles embedded in our concepts that show us continuity as permanence and compactness and solidity as self or substance this is made more difficult by the fact that we dislike impermanence and satisfactoriness and being without substance because they can destroy our cherished ego concept so we can also see not self in another way that's connected with anicca through this truth actually that we can't own anything that we can't hold on to anything so the way one of the the ways in which we um take our experience to be self there is kind of three classical ways we take our experience to be i me or mine we can see through this begin to see through this mistake we make that we can hold on or own things when i was on um self retreat recently i noticed myself i had to i was at self on self retreat at home and i had to put together this chair it was a new chair and i was going to use it to sit in but it was also just going to kind of be a living room chair and i was like ooh new chair and i was screwing it together and i was i was noticing the mind just really liking this chair like this chair is so awesome so awesome in my living room and make me so happy this chair is going to make me so happy it's like so soft it's the perfect color it's the perfect height i can imagine all my friends coming over and admiring my chair i love this chair and i was just watching the mind was like i was identifying with the chair i took it to be mine my own and i was feeding like my ego was feeding off of this chair and we, we oh gosh we do that we do that a lot and and i knew i was like i was watching the flow of this chair is going to go i mean how many at this point 53 years old how many places have i moved in and out of and had to like sell the thing or get you know give away the thing that i've lived with right i know it's going and and yet so we can't hold on
So I just want to touch on, there's so many ways that we can see not-self, we can see Anicca. And I just want to touch on, I think, one more. Which is simply by seeing our stories come and go. Just simply by seeing how we really create worlds with ourself at the center over and over again. And we can see the suffering of that mistake of solidifying experience from the continual creation and, and then deterioration of these stories. It can, yeah. So this we can see on retreat. We can see it in daily life. And the practice is going for me. One thing that really helped me early on in practice, I was just practicing in daily life and I practiced a lot at work. I had a lot to practice with. I was a, I was a lawyer at a nonprofit law firm and, you know, work was stressful. So I tried to bring the practice really in there. And uh, I was practicing one morning before I went to work. I was walking my dog around a park in San Francisco and just lightly noticing the mind and what it was doing. And it was doing its stress stories about the day. But as I walked literally around this circular park, I watched the mind go from, oh my God, I'm such a bad lawyer. I did this wrong yesterday. I'm going to do this wrong today to, oh my gosh, I'm such a great lawyer. I made, the, I can remember this sentence I wrote in this brief and oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going to win the case. And then, and then it went around and around and it went up, bad, good, bad lawyer, good lawyer, bad lawyer, good lawyer. And it was exhausting. By the time I got back to the, where I had started, I was like, this is exhausting. And it was such a good scene for me because I was like, okay, can I just accept sometimes I'm going to do okay and sometimes maybe not? Like, that's actually the reality of life. <laughs> could that be okay? Could that just, could, yeah, could that be okay? And it, from then, I, I really did feel a release in that particular seeing. It helped a lot. But it's sort of like, when is the gig up, right? With the constant, we referred to the, James started off referring to the report cards we give ourselves for meditating, good or bad. When is the gig up that it's just a flow of change? Sometimes the mind might go good, sometimes the mind might go bad, but can you just watch it come and go and not actually get identified with that? It's just a story the mind's telling. It's not, there's no truth to it. There's nothing that can actually be grasped onto. When is the gig up? And when the gig is up, oh, there's freedom. So, again, I just want to give a little reminder not to intellectualize, not self. It's, It's a beautiful gift of something that we can see through the practice that begins to set us free. And you can ask, though, you know, why even talk about it? Why is it even important to talk about it if we're not supposed to intellectualize or think it through? There are many reasons. One of them is simply it's the truth. It's the truth. And when we're running from the truth, there's some suffering in that. We can feel it. 
And we can feel the great peace and that freedom that I was referring to, letting down the burden of mistakenly taking experience to be self. You know, as we see further into Anicca and Anatta, we can increasingly become at peace with the fact that things are ending all the time. This is what Bikunalio says. We become increasingly able to be at peace with the ending of things. We are willing to allow things to cease. It becomes more and more clear that cessation is not frightening, but actually peaceful. So there's nothing to do but let go, and then we can feel more freedom in that. As Ajahn Shah kind of famously said, if you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have complete peace. And this is not just for our hearts and minds. It can be empowering. We can see ourselves letting go of limiting thoughts about ourselves, seeing through that they can't be true, they can't actually um, really say something about ourselves, self-judging thoughts, and really begin to let go of those. This has, can, these can be particularly internalized for you know, people with particular conditioning, people in marginalized communities. This can really be empowering. As we see in each and Anatta more and the mistakes that people are making that are keeping them bound up and suffering can tenderize our hearts and connect us with other beings as we're universally experiencing these kinds of this flow of change and the contractions that can take place in the midst of it. We can become less bamboozled, chasing after pleasant, not so much believing that a chair can make us happy. And we can begin to give more to the world, not holding on so much. Connecting compassionately because of our ability to connect with the truth more and more in each moment and to live our lives aligned with it. It really highlights the importance, since every moment is disappearing, you know, all we have, we can say maybe that we have, is our intention in any given moment. Like, are we meeting this moment with care? And that can become extremely poignantly important when we know that that's really all there is to connect with. And you know, it's important to talk about Anicca, not self, and discover this for ourselves because, you know, something in us has a sense that there's a clenched fist that's holding on, that's not doing that letting go. And we have this opportunity for freedom. 
She saw that arising phenomena arose, abided, and passed away. She saw that the knowing of this arose, abided, and passed away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Let's just sit for a minute. I hope to see some of you for chanting. Enjoy your walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.